MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, and this is episode number 81. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, real-life lawyer, real-life friend, Andrew Torres. Oh, Allison, as always, thanks for having me here. Having you here, you're the other <laughs> half of the show. Know, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> like I say, Thank you for week, having me here. Yeah, it's always, it's just such a joy to uh, be able to do this show with you. Yeah, no, I agree. I actually, I missed you this week because um, I know we were both, uh, you know, pretty busy. And so we didn't have our normal, you know, back and forth uh, text messaging fest <laughs> that we usually do. But hey, we got uh, Al Zwahari. So, yep. wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, indeed. I wonder if this is going to put a damper on the little golf tournaments that Donald Trump's been hosting. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't know that anything will, you know, kind of establish a roadblock in in any way until Donald Trump is finally indicted, which, you know, let's let's hope that's sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm thinking March. I'm thinking probably March. And I'm glad you said it that way. Right. Like we've we've been saying, look, it is not going to happen until uh, the January 6th committee has finished its work. I probably again, you know, we've talked about what the uh, DOJ guidance is on this issue, and there there is nothing, there is no policy that you couldn't indict Donald Trump the day before the midterm elections. This mm-hmm. DOJ will not do that. A- absolutely, nope, no, no, nope. not after what Comey did. No, they are and- not going to do anything fucking close to it, and. You know, like I said, like you said, they have to get everything from the committee and not because they no. don't want to do their own work and they're too lazy and they're smoking. No, balls, otherwise you can't. Although that's cool. <laughs> but yeah, you have to have you have to have everything or you'll end up like Durham in the Sussman trial <laughs> where he wasn't prepared. Well, he should have been that his witness told three different agencies, three different things. But I, I, I love actually I, I, I want to spend 30 seconds on that because I love that you keep coming back to that. And I want to make sure that I'm unpacking that for listeners who haven't heard your full colloquy on that experience. But the difference between special prosecutor John Durham and, you know, folks who were competently prosecuting actual criminals uh, in good faith using ordinary prosecutorial means one of the things that was 
instantly fatal <laughs> to <laughs> one the, the one yeah, of the things <laughs> <laughs> to to the uh to the efforts uh by uh special prosecutor durham uh, was that he had one key witness right and the the problem is that key witness had delivered three separate statements on three separate occasions all of which contradicted each other that will be the case okay so so that then it, it, there is zero chance that a jury is going to say oh yeah not only do we accept your version of one of those statements but we're going to we're going to accept that beyond a reasonable doubt to convict someone of a crime even if it's a small crime right juries will say look there are three equally plausible readings here two of them say acquit <laughs> and mm -hmm. one maybe says convict so uh that's the very definition i mean that is literally the law school textbook definition of reasonable doubt now mm -hmm. and, and it is important to to note that uh, jim baker the star witness wasn't lying yeah to anyone he just had a uh, misrecollection he just had different recollections of things and that's the inconsistency that you have to look for before you go to trial and be prepared to deal with in case someone tries to impeach your star witness on the stand that's exactly right and so now apply that to indicting donald trump every person who has testified, whether publicly or just given private interviews to the January 6th committee, is a potential material witness in any criminal trial of Donald Trump, right? And as a result, Donald Trump is entitled to, and his defense team will receive transcripts of every interview, every deposition, every time those folks have sat for questioning by the January 6th committee. And so, if the January 6th committee has not met with, uh, has not completed its public work and has not met with the DOJ, which, you know, by the way, that they are not going to coordinate until they're done. Right. They've they've said that they don't they don't want to uh, commingle potential criminal investigations with their uh, congressional forward facing view. Right. That's that and there's the another point. another good point that I just want to interject really Ooh, yeah, quickly yeah, here that I didn't think about that Jamie Raskin pointed out uh, to us is that. It's not so much that they're, you know, super protective uh, if, for ego reasons, yeah. because what's going to happen is once all that stuff is turned over or once they turn over stuff, then by rules, by the rules, the, the prosecutors have to give that evidence over to the baddies and the baddies will leak it all nope. over God's green earth. That's a real... That, <laughs> I love Jamie Raskin. I'm very jealous that you got a chance to chat with him without me around. Uh, but, um, I, I, you know. So it's not like that because everyone's like, well, we're protective of it. Everyone's like, well, DOJ is not going to leak it. They aren't worried about the right. DOJ. They're D worried about Trump pack paid lawyers handing out transcripts like Ronnie Jackson hands out Oxy. Uh, at a Christmas party to <laughs> nice. to the public. That's what they're that. And I was like, I didn't even think of that. I didn't I, I, think of that. I hadn't thought of that either. And again, remember, this is the party that produced the bar memorandum, right? <laughs> so if you think they will. <laughs> this not is the take... party that that Gates is down there at a amp fest telling Stone what's in the redacted Mueller report. The, right. That's these guys. Yeah, and so they will take right 
the three sentences in the middle of, you know, Liz Cheney's investigation in which she is trying to get a witness on her side that seems sympathetic or seem exculpatory and we'll leak those. Right. And we'll say, look, like, see, it's all. And, and so, yeah, uh, that that is I, I, I love that you add that onto it. So all of that means a couple of things. Number one, it means that there will be no trans final transmission of the transcripts of witness testimony from the January 6th committee to the DOJ until they've wrapped up their public facing portion of the hearings. And number two, it means that once that's done and they go into cooperation mode, then right, you can bring your indictments because then and only then will your prosecutors have access to the same information that Trump's defense counsel will have. Mm -hmm. You do not want it to be the reverse. We saw what happens. <laughs> that's that's how you lose a trial in three days with the jury deliberating for like 12 minutes, right? Yeah. Which is what yeah. happened with Sussman. So, yeah. Yeah, and and they have to go through all those thousand plus transcripts mm -hmm. uh, line by line to make sure that and compare them to the transcripts and interviews with the FBI and 302s and grand jury that they have. And then also use them to prepare for any grand jury witnesses they haven't brought in to interview to make sure there's consistency. And that's why they hired another 131 prosecutors <laughs> and built a whole wing off of the U.S. District or U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. is because they're anticipating that kind yeah. of heavy work. Uh, that's a, that is a strong. And, and you remind me of one more thing. Then I'll let it go. Sorry, you just keep saying so many great things that I, I just have to jump on. <laughs> It is commonplace. I do this all the time. You do this for us to mock Trump's legal team, right? Because the A lawyers have jumped ship. The B lawyers have jumped ship. The C level lawyers are getting indicted. And so now we are left with a collection of clowns and morons, right? I want to emphasize this in no uncertain terms. Donald Trump, due to his sheer wealth, will have an advantage in defending himself against criminal charges in connection with a document-heavy indictment, which anyone would be, right? The fact that there are all these records, because you can hire, and, and there are countless firms out there that are uh, just contract attorney firms, right? And what you want are live bodies reading documents, looking for inconsistencies. This person is not, hours. It's yeah, person hours. Th this is not high-level work, and it grossly disproportionately favors an egregiously wealthy private defendant. And so Donald Trump will have each and every page of each and every document of the hundreds of thousands of documents that the January 6th committee has, has already reviewed, right? We'll have reports on that. We'll have lawyers standing by looking for any kind of inconsistency to run up the food chain. I, I know I've done I've supervised that kind of work at huge coat factory law firms, right? Like that. That's what Trump will do. And it doesn't. And yeah. The fact that his top level lawyers may be, you know, uh, uh, sycophants and morons does not negate that structural advantage. So all of that comes together with when, you know, when we say as we do every week, gosh, I'd like for Trump to be indicted yesterday. Uh, 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 that's true. That remains the case. It is also <laughs> yeah. true that your prosecutors have to be as well-armed as they possibly can 
before moving forward. Okay. <laughs> yep. 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 All right. Now on with the script. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I love it. It's like colloquy for, you know, 15 minutes. That's okay. We had a lot Sorry, to Sorry. I like about. talking to you. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but no, it, it was important stuff. But before we go any further and get into that scripted show, uh, which actually isn't scripted, uh, just bullet points, just, just so everybody knows we're going in cold today. We want to thank our new patrons, uh, Don Hoffman, Good Grebes, Dana Schwartz, Penelope Albritton, uh, Small Potot, uh, which is awesome. Checking in and 3 and 2 DC. Yep. Thank you all. Special shout out to 3 and 2 DC who sent us a nice message over at Patreon. And yes, go DC statehood. Uh, remember, you too can get a shout out by heading over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, pledging as little as a buck an episode. You get the ad free version of the show. You get our bonus Zoom calls, put a pin in that and other stuff, right? Like you can send us a message on Patreon and I do my best to reply to each and every one of those uh, that, that come in. And my OCD loves this, but uh, we have our next patron-only Zoom hangout mm. <laughs> this Friday, August 5th at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. So that's 8558, right? That's so cool. Oh. You'll get the Zoom link over at uh, Patreon. Just check your email. Check your junk if, you, uh, if those Patreon emails go into your junk box. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to answer your questions. It's going to be awesome. It's a palindromic Zoom link. I love it. Uh, and so I, I had written be there and be square in the links, but I figured uh, using the adjective palindromic gave me all the geek yeah, yeah. I possibly could. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With that in mind, on with the show. All right, our lead story is ostensibly about a just unsealed indictment handed down a few weeks ago of one Alexander Viktorovich Ionov, a.k.a. Sasha, under 18 U.S. Code 371. Uh, and I also think 951 is in there, is it not? So 951 is the predicate crime. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you, I, I, I know you'll unpack that. So. Yeah, we'll talk about that. And, yep. and you know, we've spoken a lot about the second half of that statute in connection with the January 6th committee. That's the law that makes it a felony to conspire to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose. But the first half of 371 also makes it a felony to conspire to commit any offense against the United States. And here, Ionov is alleged to have conspired to act as an agent of a foreign government, to wit, the Russian Federation, without registering as a foreign agent under FARA. And that's the 18 U.S. Code 951, which, by the way, I would call espionage light until I was sort of corrected to say, nah, it's more like FARA on steroids. <laughs> I, I, I like it but I, look at its core this isn't really a story about Ionov or even uh, one of his unindicted co-conspirators a guy who's listed as UIC 6 in the indictment but is almost certainly Louis J. Marinelli the founder of Yes California or as the indictment would call it U.S. Political Group 3 um the group's name, uh, the Yes California name, was uh, lifted directly from Yes Scotland, which was the failed 2014 effort in Scotland to withdraw from the United Kingdom. And from that, you can probably guess that Yes California was ostensibly dedicated to the proposition that California should secede from the United States. Yes, CalExit, they yep. called it, and it was a thing here. Um, it sounds like it should not be a thing, because it's actually unconstitutional, and there's no 
way for California to secede, except for, I don't know, us to take up arms and fight. You know, um, it's, it's just very clearly not a legal thing, right? Like, it, California absolutely cannot unilaterally exit from the Union. Uh, we fought a civil war over that. Yeah, I would love to. That'd be cool. Uh, but, you know, no. Um, I'm, I'm actually persuaded not, but but we can we can hit that <laughs> afterwards. And 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 again, and yes, part of the reason I'm persuaded not is because uh, right wing fascists and monsters are bankrolling those kinds of efforts. But yes, that's that's cool. very true. And and it was to play on our whole fear when Trump got elected mm-hmm. that, that we would be living in this hellscape uh, for four are. years. <laughs> and, and yes, hello. Um, so here, here's the story though, that Marinelli tells the world. Specifically, he told Bloomberg this in December of 2016, right after he voted for Donald Trump, by the way. First, he said that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter, who would be a big shocker, uh, and that Hillary Clinton was an exponent of the oligarchy, whatever the hell that means. Uh, Once Sanders lost the primary, Marinelli, in his own words, decided that Trump represented the real America and that his election would invigorate people. Uh, the people of California, to understand they shouldn't be part of that country, the guy he voted for. (laughs) Specifically, Marinelli argued that California is much more open, tolerant society, inclusive of immigrants or people of different sexual orientation, and therefore he felt it would be able to achieve things like immigration reform here, uh, give a legal status to undocumented immigrants, do all the other progressive things that I came to support, like gun control and universal health care. That was his pitch, right? All right, so full stop. That's a story I've heard uh, before. I still hear a lot. I imagine you hear it a lot, right? Um, You subtract some of this seriously goofy stuff like, you know, California seceding from the union. And and this falls under the rubric of leftist accelerationism, right? The idea that if you are to the left of the two major political parties candidates, you should stay home, vote third party, or even vote for the worst candidate, the Republican, because that candidate will get elected, suck, and then the backlash will, A, strengthen the people who agree with you next time, and B, push the Democratic Party to nominate a more liberal candidate so as to cater to your vote uh, also in that next election. Boy, that really worked out in 2016, didn't yeah. it? We picked a super progressive fella. I, 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 but please do go on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, seriously. I, I do want to, you know, say Biden did have the most and still does have the most progressive agenda of any candidate running for any office of the president that was one of the two major party um, uh, nominees in history. But anyway, uh, but that seems like it's not all borne out by history, right? Consider the last two times Republicans managed to win the presidency. In 2000, a tiny group of truly misinformed progressives voted for Ralph Nader enabling George W. Bush, with the help of the Supreme Court, to sneak into office. And in 2004, Democrats elected the most conservative candidate in the primaries, picking John Kerry over Howard Dean. Woohoo! I was such a huge Dean supporter back then. Me too, me too. And Bush I still not have on- my Deanie babies. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Deanie babies, that's right. And Bush not only won re-election, but expanded his appeal, becoming the only Republican this century to actually win the popular vote. And then there's 2016, as I said, where some progressives sat out or voted for con artist and grifter Jill Stein, 
or Johnston. What was his name? John, the, oh, the, Gary Johnson. Yeah, the uh, Gary Johnson. I, that not only the pot smoking libertarian. I, and again, got nothing wrong with with pot smoking. Okay, that the libertarian is the ins, is the insult there. Uh, <laughs> but but he really seemed to have that like you know that guy who's been smoking weed for the last like. 50 years and you know sounds like tommy chong every time he goes to deliver a sentence his vice presidential candidate former republican massachusetts governor bill weld essentially went on msnbc and was like dude you should vote for hillary clinton so yeah. anyway mm -hmm. sorry mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> slight interjection yeah. bill weld is the only republican i've ever voted for in my life so <laughs> <laughs> and and 2016 as i said same thing happened democrats picked their most conservative candidate in, for 2020 in Joe Biden and 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 Trump did way better in 2020 than he did in 2016. So rooting yeah. for the enemy is not a winning strategy and also you'll never send a message. <laughs> how how on earth to anyone by not by not voting or the or only voting, yeah. the only <laughs> message you've sent me is that I'm not a full citizen now. Thanks. Uh, the the only message you've sent is that your vote is not reliable. So from a strictly <laughs> game theory perspective, why should parties cater to that vote? And what we know happens, what we you just demonstrated in 2000 and, and 2016, is that the party freaks out and says, oh my gosh, like Hillary Clinton couldn't win. L let's make sure we nominate the most possible milk toast person we can. Uh, you know, the blandest, least controversial yeah, person. Yeah, that was the message. A so woman that can't we win. don't lose. We got to go with God the dude. help yeah. us if Donald Trump wins again. And and mm -hmm. that's what will happen. It absolutely has happened every single time. Uh, the, the accelerationism, I mean, you know, got its start in... Hmm, 1968, which worked out not great for peace activists, uh, allowing, you know, Richard Nixon to win the presidency super narrowly. Go back and look at Hubert Humphrey's margins in those races. Uh, they sat out. Nixon won, grossly expanded the Vietnam War, and then won 49 states in the next election. So it's terrible strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, always mm -hmm. produce the opposite of what its proponents say it will do. But usually... When we're talking to folks who endorse it, I assume that the person saying it is being sincere. Right. Yes. Yeah. Same Zs. Misguided, but sincere. So I, I was a little somewhat surprised to hear on Louis Marinelli, the, the, the person, you know, you just quoted going to Bloomberg about how California is more open and tolerant, particularly on LGBTQ issues. Uh, in 2006, the same Louis Marinelli launched a Facebook group called Protect Marriage, One Man, One Woman, which grew to be the largest online social media network of social conservatives against marriage equality in the United States. It was folded into the National Organization for Marriage in 2009, and Marinelli went on a 17-state pro-bigotry tour in 2010. Now, Marinelli, uh, uh, by the way, who met with Russian agents that year, says he had a change of heart late that year and somehow went all the way from being a pro-bigot social conservative to being a Bernie progressive. Uh, you evaluate that however you want. But um, I would say that the, this DOJ indictment casts a little bit of doubt on the sincerity of that profession. And that brings us back to the subject of our indictment, Alexander Yanov. Yes, Yanov, the founder and president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia, and, according to the indictment, quote, working under FSB supervision, that's the Federal Security Service, that's their counterintelligence service, right? Yeah. 
uh, and was working with FSB support, Ionov recruited members of various political groups within the U.S. and other countries sponsored by AGMR, that's the anti-globalization movement of Russia, and the Russian government, the Kremlin. The purpose of those conferences uh, was to encourage participating local separatist groups, including in Florida and in California, uh, and specifically, Ionov directed those groups like Yes, California, and I think the Uhuru to publish pro-Russian propaganda, as well as other information designed to cause dissension, sow chaos in the United States, and further Russian interests. And when you do that without disclosing that you are lobbying on behalf of a foreign country, that's a crime. Okay? Yeah. But it's also important as a reminder that Russia's disinformation campaign, their efforts to sow discord in this country, manipulate our elections, did not end with the election of a pro-Russian stooge in Trump in 2016. It did not end with Trump's defeat in 2020. It continues to be ongoing, including right now. And, and this was terrifying to me to read in the indictment. Uh, as paragraph 16 of the indictment sets forth, Russia targets the U.S. and its allies to shape foreign perceptions and influence by creating wedges that reduce trust and confidence in democratic processes. Okay, we knew that. Degrading democratization efforts, weakening U.S. partnerships with its allies, encouraging anti-U.S. and anti-Western political views. The terrifying part, as I think you're going to unpack, is that that goes all the way down to the primary level in local elections. So they include co-opting and astroturfing not only far-right, overtly pro-Trump groups, but also fake fronts that appear to be critical of the United States from the left and, again, at every level of resolution. Yeah, there was stuff like city council and local yeah. mayor shit going on. And it's not to say there isn't much to be critical of in the United States. We do that every week. <laughs> <laughs> but it is to say that we need to be on guard against deliberate exploitation and misinformation and propaganda efforts that may be funded by Russian counterintelligence ops. So, for example, Ionov is alleged to have sent thousands of dollars to fund a four-city tour, quote, to show that people are opposing the U.S. colonial government. That's paragraph 21. And thousands more influencing and securing the elections of local candidates for public office in, don't giggle, St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> that's, the first time, Sorry. <laughs> that's the first time we've seen them meddling in local primary elections. Who, who was referred to in the internal FSB documents as the candidate whom we supervise. <laughs> which means a literal Russian asset, not an unwitting asset like perhaps Bernie Sanders was or Jill Stein was in 2016. Uh, and, and there's some argument about the Jill Stein thing. Yeah. But, yeah. but, um, I, Tulsi Gabbard, we might yeah, add, yeah. add on to that. Yeah. yeah I, they know. I, I, right. So that's, that's sort of this primary level stuff. And, and, you know, I, I posted the names of, of some of the candidates that I think they were talking about for city council and mayor that ran in 2017 and 2019. And I just keep thinking back to as much as you might think Mueller kind of dropped the ball on a bunch of stuff when he sat and he testified before Congress and was asked if Russia is interfering in our elections. He said, as we sit here. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that sticks with me. Uh, it, it, it should. Right. And, and in addition to direct operatives, candidates, there are, of course, right, as as Mueller testified to the extensive efforts to influence elections on social media, including creating a left wing group that was protesting U.S. sanctions in Ukraine that got over 900,000 followers and led with pro-Russian narratives like 
Nazis in Ukraine, right? We saw a lot of that, but very publicly. Um, the same stooge candidate that you talked about from St. Petersburg signed off on a private email to Iana. This is why he's described as, and I say he, but let's be real. It's probably a male. Uh, the candidate whom we supervise claiming his group, quote, stands with Russia and stands with Putin. That's what he put in a literal email to Alexander Yanov. Um, that's I. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's I, no you don't need to guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, you cannot. No well-meaning person can say I stand with Putin. <laughs> so look, yeah, look, the important part of the story here is, isn't that all left-wing criticism of the government is Russia propaganda. I've been dealing with that on Twitter all day when I posted a list of keywords to look yeah. out for, uh, which was, that was super fun because um, I, I know instantly who to block. I'm usually bombarded by people who exactly fit the description of what I put in the tweet. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'm not saying that all left-wing criticism of government is Russian propaganda. I criticize the government. Right. You know, we're going to do it later in the show when we talk about the inspector general. Um, and it's not, or that even that it's misplaced, right? We have plenty of criticism for what this administration has and hasn't done. The point of the story is that right now our geostrategic enemies are actively, aggressively funding, developing, and interfering with our democratic elections down to the local primary level in a way that most of you probably didn't know or expect, or, you know, listeners of this program probably knew or expected, but <laughs> yeah. in general, um, because if you know, if you listen to our shows and you're active in politics, you've almost certainly interacted with Russian assets without maybe even knowing it. Yeah. I, and, and, and while that's terrifying, the, the only remedy I can come up with is to be more skeptical of the political discourse, even when it seems like it's on our side. Right. And, you know, that's why we try and inform you as much as we can about what's really going on so that you have the answers for the enemies of democracy. And I use that phrase deliberately because that is the fundamental goal of the Russian counterintelligence ops in this country. It is to sow discord about democracy itself, to get people to say what we jokingly, you know, will we'll quip from The Simpsons, right? The the Kent Brockman, like, oh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, democracy just doesn't work. That should be a laugh line. And for a staggeringly scary percentage of the population, it isn't anymore. And uh, when you see that, when you see, ant when you see propaganda that strikes at the heart of democracy itself, man, that's that. All I can say is that is consistent with what the Russian intelligence operatives want you to believe. Yeah, 100%. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back, and we're going to talk about this cool letter that uh, reps, I believe, Maloney and Benny Thompson have written to a guy named Kafari, who I'm sure if you're listening to this program, you already know, is the <laughs> uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security Office Inspector General. He's the IG for the Department of Homeland Security for now. Uh, we'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's A.G. from Muller She Wrote and The Daily Beans. And Steve Pearson from the How We Win podcast. We're bringing together some of our besties for a live super pod to raise money for the How We Win Fund and elect Democrats in November. Featuring us, of course. The hilarious Frangela duo. Ben and Brett Mazelis from the Midas Touch podcast. And the one and only Kathy Griffin. Join us on Monday, August 22nd at Largo in Los Angeles. Go to HowWeWinLive.com and get your tickets now. That's HowWeWinLive.com. 
Uh, everybody, welcome back uh, to the Honorable Questionable Joseph V. Kufari. Letter dated August 1st, 2022. Uh, to you, the Inspector General, Department of Homeland Security, uh, over there in Washington, D.C. Dear Inspector General Kufari, I love the, they're so kind. We're writing with grave new concerns over your lack of transparency and independence, which appear to be jeopardizing the integrity of crucial investigation run by your office. According to recent reports, your office learned that the Secret Service was missing critical text messages as part of your investigation of the January 6th attack back in May of 2021, seven months earlier than you previously revealed. Uh, the uh, committees have obtained new evidence that your office may have secretly abandoned, secretly abandoned efforts to collect text messages from the Secret Service more than a year ago. Those documents also indicate that your office, documents, by the way, those documents also indicate that your office may have taken steps to cover up the extent of missing records, raising further concerns about your ability to independently and effectively perform your duties as the inspector general. Andrew, that's kind of a summary of what we're about to get into in the meat of this letter, because the, these these two reps, and I, I want to keep saying the one six committee, but this is Rep. Benny Thompson on behalf of the Department of Homeland Security House mm -hmm. Committee and Carolyn Maloney, rep uh, representing the uh, House Oversight Committee. Uh, and so if I if I make that mistake, it's just because everything I've been talking about committee wise has been January 6th right. for so long. <laughs> you and me both. But let's let's talk about you know, the, we mentioned documents, cover up uh, seven months earlier. I mean, this is this is a like a screaming red flag here. Yeah, ab absolutely. So uh, first, a, a little bit of background. Uh, Kufari was appointed uh, as the inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security and uh, confirmed on July 25th, 2019. So if you're mathing it out, uh, yes, he's a Trump appointee. He is, as far as I can tell, a Trump hack. He was the policy advisor to Jan Brewer and Doug Ducey, who are goddamn monsters. He, uh, you know, his his master's degree comes from an online diploma mill, right? Like this is this is the kind of person that uh, and by the way, that was eight seconds of Wikipedia, right? Like who you type his name into the Google machine and it comes back with that huge red flashing light that says this is a Trump goblin. Fire him whenever possible. So the fact that Joe Biden did not fire Joseph Kafari as inspector general immediately upon assuming office. Yeah, consider that to be part of our criticism of this administration <laughs> from the left, right? Like this guy's terrible and needs to have been gone yesterday. Yeah, there um, you have it. And I also want to say, Andrew, that, you know, I've been saying since since early on, uh, I have not wavered from this and I have not had a differing opinion on this, that Kufari is in on this. He's, he's mm -hmm. somehow complicity, somehow in on this. And a lot of people come back to me and said, yeah, but he was appointed back in 2019. And my simple response to that is, sure, he was appointed by Donald Trump, and I'm assuming somebody said, hey, are you willing to do this? And he was willing to go along with it, and that's why he wasn't fired by Donald Trump and replaced with somebody who would be willing to go along with it, if that makes any sense. I just wanted to sort of comment on the timing that you brought up, that he was nominated back in 2019, probably before any of the coup plotting uh, was going on, although not conceding has been in the cards for this man uh, since 2015. Uh, but I, I, I think that it was probably found out that he was a loyalist. He was tested 
and he was a loyalist, and so he wasn't ripped out like the Department of Defense uh, and the ICIG inspectors general, like the Health and Human Services inspector general for raising alarm bells on COVID, like the Department of Transportation inspector general for looking into Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife. Like there, there were a lot that he plucked out. This guy got to stay, which means he passed the test, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know if I would go as far as to say, and I, I hear your case in advance. I, I think in my mind, when I look at Trump appointees, and, and again, this methodology caused me to whiff pretty badly on Bill Barr. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I look at them and I go, okay, is this somebody who has ordinary credentials uh, for the job that they're doing and has done jobs in the civil service before, right, or equivalent jobs before. And usually that gets you a fairly reliable baseline of, okay, right, we're talking about Republicans, we're talking about people we're going to disagree with. Um, and 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 he is very clearly, Kufari is very, very clearly on the, you know, unqualified sycophant side of the line to begin with. So I just view him as having been hired because he was a pro-Trump goon. Well, yeah, and, he was going to need yeah. him to quash the 2020 protests. He was going to need him to back him on the uh, pulling kids away from their families at the border. So, like he was going to yeah. be needed for other corrupt it, 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 shit. Right, besides it is the not, coup. Yeah, it is not just right. DHS. I, it oversees a lot of areas in which <laughs> Trump was committing crimes. So yes, yeah, yes. so I think we're I think we're probably in fair agreement there. And of, of course, the 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 reason that he's being brought into the spotlight here is that uh, the the January sixth committee requested uh, all of the text messages from the Secret Service on January fifth and January sixth, and a couple of weeks ago on July thirteenth. Kofari wrote to Benny Thompson and was like, oh, yeah, those things, we don't have those. They're gone. They've been erased. Um, and I, it, that seemed a lot suspicious. Yeah. A letter goes on to say your notice to Congress came about 14 months after you reportedly learned that Secret Service tax were unavailable. 14 months, even though. Uh, and here the reps remind him inspectors general are required by law to immediately report problems or abuses that are particularly serious or flagrant, which I would assume this qualifies. It goes on to say your July 13th letter failed to mention that a year earlier and just six weeks after you initially requested text messages to Secret Service personnel, senior officials in your office, you instructed the Department of Homeland Security that the Office of Inspector General no longer needed Secret Service text messages as part of its investigation related to the January 6th attack. I, I <laughs> it cannot be overstated how much of a departure from, you know, the Presidential Record Keeping Act, the law and established policy that is it, it essentially right. What we learned in that letter uh, was that Kafari went from requiring that his subordinates produce the data or figure out how the data were erased, that that sort of thing, to now a request that, okay, if, if something is missing, you have to write a note explaining what information is missing, but not retrieving the information. And th that that's, that's a problem. And I'm mm. glad to see uh, that senior members of Congress are on this. Uh, and again, in, in connection with more than just the, the January 6th committee. 
Yeah. Now check this out. They brought receipts. <laughs> the committees, I'm continuing on the letter to Kafari here. The committees obtained a July 27th, 2021 email. 2021. From one Thomas Kate, the Deputy Inspector General, for inspections and evaluations in your office. This email was from him, Kate, to Jim Crumpacker, <laughs> senior good, liaison. Good bureaucrat named Crumpacker. Cheese bro and Crumpacker, LLC, <laughs> uh, who is a senior liaison official at DHS. And Deputy IG Kate stated in the email, Jim, please use this email as a reference to our conversations where I said we are no longer... We no longer request phone records and text messages from the Secret Service relating to the events of January 6th, period. And so notice, right, this comes from your subordinate to another official in the department carrying out your practices. So, and, and, and you know, this is how you trap guys like this, right? I am sure, you know, that Kufari has scrubbed all of his illicit emails, but you can't do that from the top down, right? Like there, it, it, it requires a bureaucracy, requires bureaucrats under you implementing the policy. And uh, and and this letter is replete. We're probably going to get into more of the memoranda that, uh, you know, have been produced by Deputy IG Kate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, you know... might be in line for a promotion sometime soon. So, for example, Mm. you know, the committee's learned that the same senior official, Kate, removed key language from a February 2022 memorandum to DHS, which had highlighted the importance of those text messages to the OIG's investigation and criticized the department for not complying with the December 3rd, 2021 request. The original memorandum uh, from February of this year says, to date, Most DHS components have not provided the requested information. Text message content is a critical source of information for the DHS OIG review. Okay, that's okay. So we put out a memorandum in February of this year saying this is critical shit. Yep, we need this. Uh, However, Kate apparently worked with other senior staff members in your office to alter the memo to remove the reference to text messages and instead praise the department for its responses. So again. Remember, it had read, you haven't given us the information, we need it. Now it reads, on December 17th, 2021, we received a timely and consolidated response from each component to our December 3rd, 2021 request. However, additional and clarifying information is needed before we can complete the reviews. Um, That's not the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, and get this, Andrew, according to other information obtained by the committees, around that time... Deputy Inspector General Kate asked colleagues, am I setting us up for anything by adding what I did? <laughs> yes. Yes, I, you If are. there's a pardon list, I would like to be on it. Yeah, because there's still a thing there. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, uh, the committee, the committee, the, these reps went on to say, I spoke with, uh, he said, I spoke with Kristen late last week and she was okay with acknowledging the department's audit liaison's efforts. She was cool with it. Kristen. Okay, so we'll talk about her in a second. Uh, committee says, these documents raise troubling new concerns that your office not only failed to notify Congress for more than a year that the critical evidence in this investigation was missing, but your senior staff deliberately chose not to pursue that evidence and then appear to have taken steps to cover up these failures. That paragraph right there knocks it out of the park, says it all. Yeah, uh, that wraps up the 
presentation of the information that these members of Congress have have gathered. The request is not just, hey, let us know your input on this. The request is we recently called for you to step aside for this from this matter and for a new inspector general to be appointed in light of revelations that you had failed to keep Congress informed of your inability to obtain key information from the Secret Service. Okay. That references uh, the letter that Benny Thompson sent on July 26th, so, you know, last week. And the, these two reps bring up the Cuccinelli and Chad Wolf uh-huh. text. Absolutely. Uh, they say those could not be a- accessed. And they said to Kafari, you didn't notify Congress of this information. The committees have also learned that your office became aware in January of this year that Cuccinelli was using his personal phone, yet your office did not seek to collect messages from his device. So it goes on to say, uh, you know, with all of these new concerns and all of this evidence we just gave you and all of this, and also the committee learned scenarios, (laughs) uh, they are asking for the following and they're asking for this by August 8th. Guys, it's five days from now. Um, They're asking for all communications related to any decision by you and your personnel not to collect or recover any text messages, including but not limited to communications related to the Deputy Inspector General Kate's July 27th, 2021 email to Jim Crumpacker. So that and then anything else you have, please. Oh, and we probably have more stuff and we would like you for uh, you to hand it over because uh, we already have it. Uh, they I want all communications related to notifying Congress about the deletion, erasure or unavailability of any text messages in this investigation. And finally, all documents and communications related to the deletion, erasure, unavailability or recovery of text messages from the Secret Service, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli in connection with this investigation. Yeah. And on top of all of that, they are required uh, to make Deputy Inspector Kate and Deputy Inspector General and Chief of Staff Kristen Fredericks, that was the Kristen you mentioned earlier, to produce those two individuals uh, for transcribed interviews no later than August 15th, 2022. Again, all of this information being collected not by the January 6th committee, uh, but um, to be transmitted <laughs> to the January 6th committee, if there's anything interesting there, uh, by uh, the chairman of the Committee of Homeland Security, Benny Thompson, in that capacity, and by uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who is the chairwoman of the Congressional Committee on Oversight and Reform. So uh, that this is that that is to say, you know, this is significant even beyond the potential relationship to the events of January 6th. And it goes to back up what I think you've been saying ever since the January 6th committee started their public hearings, which is, yeah, these it, it put people in panic mode and the cover-up is worse than the crime. Yeah, it takes a whistleblower to know a whistleblower. And I think that a lot of this information is coming from whistleblowers. And and you know what's interesting to me, Andrew, is now that this this gauntlet has been thrown, right? This is different from the January 6th committee asking for documents and, and depositions from people who might decide not to come in or whatever, because those people no longer work for the government. These people are still employed by the United States government, and their response is going to be interesting, because if they say no, or they sue, or wait for a subpoena, that's very telling. And if they (laughs) do come in and plead the fifth, or some sort of privilege, that's very telling. Because, you know, I've been... 
I've prepped a lot of government employees for testimony to Congress when I spent over mm -hmm. a decade in the government. And nobody is ever wondering if they should go. Yeah, like maybe maybe we just don't go. Everyone's like, all right, how do we best prepare for this? What questions are they going to ask? How do we? And the and the most important consideration is how do we show that we are and truly are forthcoming and transparent and willing to share everything that we know and everything that we have as government employees. And this happened a lot at the VA. You remember there's a lot of congressional testimony about VA wait lists and da da da. And yep. no, no, no one ever went in there and said, nope, don't know what you're talking about. Everything's great over here. I'll see you later. Uh, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how these current government employees who have taken an oath to be dedicated to transparency and accountability respond to this not subpoena, but a letter telling them we need these documents by five days from now and we want you to testify um, by August 15th. I'm, I'm really interested to see how they respond because we know how Ornato uh, <laughs> and Engel responded to, I'm going to testify uh, under oath, chest beat, chest beat. And like, hello, I haven't had that. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, you know, this is what was derisively referred to as a perjury trap by Trump's idiot lawyers when the Mueller <laughs> investigation was proceeding in this way. But like th this is how an ordinary investigation proceeds. When you think people are lying to you, you ask them to come in and sit for an interview. If they lawyer up, you got a pretty good sense of where they are and you fire them and then subpoena them to come in and talk to you. But if they come in voluntarily and you still think they are covering, then you ask them questions that are designed to either get them to admit to uh, having misled you uh, or if they don't know because they don't know what you know. Right. Uh, they're, they're committed to a lie. And that's how you get people for violating 18 U.S.C. 1001 falsely, t uh, g you know, giving false testimony yeah, to Congress or, or any investigatory if, if I were in his position, what I would do is I would come in and say, look, I didn't tell you because I am under threat. I was told not to by the former president and uh, I am afraid of him. <laughs> I, I, that would be super useful information to have. Yeah, so, I mean, that would be the best way to go. I mean, if you had to pick all the ways to go, that's the best way to go. I'm I'm, I'm with you. So, yeah, that, that's my way of saying that, you know, I feel like if they remain Trump loyalists, this is a good way of kind of beating the bushes to flush them out. Uh, and if they are ready to go Richard Donahue on us and, uh, you know, let's let's welcome them with open arms. Yes. And um uh, it's, I'm just excited to see. Now, excited is the wrong word. Uh, uh, interested. No, I'm excited. Um, we'll see what <laughs> happens. We'll talk about it on the next show. Um, uh, before we get going, though, I, I want to really quickly do um, a quick comings and goings. But, you know, I do want to let you know, Andrew, I'm on a little bit of a timeline because I have to go to the shoplifting trap after this. I mean, the oh. supermarket. <laughs> right. So if you could, you know, I think we only have one comings and goings today and it's a big one. Yeah. So <laughs> a couple a couple sub comings and goings. But on Friday, President Biden nominated Julie Reichelman, who you may recall was the uh, lawyer who argued uh, just so forcefully and again, you know, in the face of a predetermined outcome uh, on behalf of the Women's Health Clinic in the Dobbs decision uh, to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And that is, uh, you know, federal judiciary, one step away from the Supreme Court. Uh, she's such a talented lawyer. She was so great. 
uh, in that, you know, in, in her oral argument, um, you know, sitting there just dealing with the stupidest, most disingenuous and awful questions from the monsters who had made up their mind uh, well in advance. I, I, I love this so much. I love, love, love this nomination because not only is she extremely qualified, uh, but this is this is a big double barrel middle finger to to anti-choice advocates everywhere. <laughs> I, I this is a, 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 a this was politically strategic, a politically strategic nomination that also uh, goes toward you know awesomeness and diversity on the court and uh, having a woman there and and just you know like I said, overly qualified person for for the position. So this was whoever thought of this. Oh, I would yeah. like to. I would like to buy a beer. For that I and, and have you on our respective shows. Agreed. And you mentioned diversity. That remains the theme. If if there is one thing I could take away, and if you are, as we head towards the midterm, dealing with folks uh, who are perhaps uh, disappointed with uh, President Biden's record, uh, and I get that, um, you can point them to. The, the unbelievable work he has done with the judiciary, not just in terms of nominating liberal judge, you know, it's not like we get, you know, they get their guys and we get our guys and, you know, it's tit for tat, but, but really expanding diversity in a way that no prior president has. Uh, and yeah, I'm saying that pointedly. So along with Reichelman, Friday slate includes Judge Daniel Calabretta, who, if confirmed, would be the first LGBT judge to serve on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California. Nice. It includes Araceli Martinez-Olguin, who would be the second Latina to serve on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. And Judge Rita Lin, the second Asian-American woman, the first Chinese-American woman to serve on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. I, I, I could go on. All of these are just putting to lie the white supremacist Donald Trump back now. You know, there just aren't enough good chicks to put on the bench. Well, you know, it, it, that, that's, that has never been the case in, in recent history, right? We have tons of qualified positions where individuals meet all of the qualification. They have the academic and judicial background. They're just waiting for somebody to notice them. And, um, and I love the fact this is you cannot do better than this administration in terms of its record for diversifying what was a very white, very male, very hetero, you know, just just, uh, you know, a, a, a standard position of power, even among, you know, past Democratic presidents. So bravo. Yeah, absolutely. And um, thank you. Thank you for that comings and goings. And and I would like to uh, uh, put in a request for some goings. Ooh. <laughs> I'd like to see Kafari go. Uh, yeah. I think the Postal Board's meeting next week. I'd like to see DeJoy go. We will we will crack open a bottle of champagne on the air <laughs> when, when they manage to kick out DeJoy. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, so those are my two wishes. Those, uh, there's many, many more. In fact, any ins inspector general appointed by uh, Donald Trump probably needs to go bye-bye. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, look into it. Obviously, like you said, if it's somebody who's been in the agency for a zillion years that they just sort of put up because they wanted to specifically get rid of somebody and it didn't matter who was taking their place, you know, case-by-case -case basis. But these Trump appointees and these borrowed employees need to need to exit um too sweet 
that's my that's my goings wish this week. I wholeheartedly endorse your uh, forthcoming going. Can't wait to cover them in a future C segment of the show, but uh, we'll have to wait for the future. So I have been Andrew Torres. I've been Allison Gill. And this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.